Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello, and welcome to episode 33 of the Burning Books podcast. That would be the Jesus episode, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to take a look at Thomas Bernhard's Frost, originally published in 1963 and translated by the redoubtable, that sounds too official, the exemplary, the, let's just say it, the fucking awesome Michael Hoffman in 2006. Hoffman's translations of Joseph Roth, Wolfgang Köppen, and Hans Falada were the doorways to all those amazing authors for me. So wherever Hoffman goes, I follow. Also, he recently added a mustache to his face. As for Thomas Bernhard, I fell hard for him by reading My Prizes, a short book where Bernhard recounts the stories around his acceptance of literary prizes at various ceremonies. Bernhard seems, in his stories, to be what we might call an under-socialized individual, and a number of the stories in My Prizes end with him wasting the winnings on sports cars and small houses in the country that are hard to reach. Bernhard is an obsessive character, and it has been said that though he has written many novels and plays, they all seem to be coming from the same burning core. In Frost, I would see if this was the case. They say, whoever they are, that Franz Kafka laughed when he read his stories to his friends. Maybe this is true when he read his short stories but it seems to be much less likely to have happened when he was reading his novels. On those occasions, he was probably asleep. With Thomas Bernhard, it's easy to picture the author laughing while reading his work to friends. Not that he would show it, and not that he would admit to having friends. Bernhard's sense of humor is way too dry to produce such trifles as chortles and titters. The laughs his works give off are more like knife slices and irremovable slivers. I'll admit this interpretation of Bernhard runs counter to some others, maybe even the predominant view, it's hard to say. For many, maybe most, Bernhard is deadly serious. But the redundant quality of deadly seriousness, he's not just dead, he's frowning, is perhaps a clue. His characters are not unhappy. They are the most miserable people that ever lived in the world. They are not in pain, they are undergoing cataclysmic suffering. There is no midway in Bernhardt, there is no extreme even. There is only the extreme times the extreme to the power of the extreme. And it's this over-the-top quality of everything in the Bernhardt novel that makes it funny. The more miserable, the more wretched and excruciating, the bleaker and blacker, the better. As the main character of Frost, the painter Strauch says, quote, where there is putrescence, I find I cannot breathe deeply enough. Whether or not you enjoy Frost depends directly on whether you find this humorous, and whether you can take, or want to take, about 342 pages of it. Frost unfolds over 27 days and is told from the point of view of a medical intern who is given the task of observing the brother of one of his mentors. The brother is a painter. And all this begins in a way that is typical of the prose. Elliptical, but viscerally direct. Viscerally direct, but also subtle and poetic. Repetitive, but with variations. And, at least from where I'm standing, 
very funny. A medical internship consists of more than spectating at complicated bowel operations, cutting open stomach linings, bracketing off lungs, and sawing off feet. And it doesn't just consist of thumbing clothes the eyes of the dead and hauling babies out into the world either. An internship is not just tossing limbs and parts of limbs over your shoulder, nor can an internship be only the putting out of false information. It isn't just saying, the pus will dissolve in your bloodstream and you'll soon be restored to perfect health. Or a hundred other such lies. Not just, it'll get better when nothing will. An internship isn't just an academy of scissors and thread, of tying off and pulling through. An internship extends to circumstances and possibilities that have nothing to do with the flesh. A side note, reading the excerpts this week is the stand-up comic David Hetty. Not only is David the funniest comic I've heard, and I truly love his comedy, his tone of voice and method of delivery, so full of hesitation and, let's face it, whining, was ringing through my ears while I read Frost. So I'm glad to have him bring to you some of what Bernhard had brought to me. Getting back to the story now. So the narrator, the intern, sets off to observe the painter, Strauch, and to get there, he has to pass from the city to the plains, then from the plains into the valley, to a town called Veng, W-E-N-G. No doubt about it, this is a descent, and Vang is at the bottom of it. As the narrator puts it, Vang, quote, is so ugly that it's characterful. In another section, he describes the weather as, quote, a climate that engenders embolisms. Actually, let's just hand it over to the narrator himself to set the scene in Vang, because that's what we really want. Dogs chasing pointlessly through lanes and farmyards, sometimes attacking people. Rivers stinking of corruption all along their length. Mountains like rigid brains. Strangers suddenly getting into conversations at crossroads, asking questions, giving answers they never asked to hear. The ugly approaches, the beautiful, and the vice versa, the ruthless and the weak. The striking quarter hours drip down on cemeteries and rooftops. Death takes a deft hand in life. Children fall into sudden fits of weakness. In inns and stations near the waterfalls, relationships are formed that barely last a moment. Friendships are struck up that never come to life. The other, the you, is tormented to the point of murderousness, and then strangled in pettiness and meanness. In these early passages, the image is of a Bruegel landscape, sin and punishment dance arm in arm. When the narrator steps off the train, he goes directly to the inn where he meets the landlady. What does he think of her after five minutes of interaction? I'm glad you asked. The landlady's disgusting to me. It's the same disgust I felt when I was a child and had to vomit outside the open doors of the slaughterhouse. If she were dead, I would, today, feel no disgust. Dead bodies on the dissecting table never remind me of live bodies. But she's alive, and living in a moldy ancient reek of in-kitchens. Apparently she likes me, though, because she liked my suitcase upstairs and offered to bring me breakfast in bed every morning, which is absolutely at variance with their normal practice. The narrator's ill will isn't reciprocated, or at least it doesn't seem to be, until a while later, when the narrator finds out that, though the landlady says she's been serving beef to her guest, it's actually dog. Indeed, the landlady is a frequent subject of the painter's observations. She's a monster, the painter says, but she's one among many. You'll get a whole series of monsters here, especially at the inn. A little later, the painter expands the point. It is not a good cast of human being here. The people are relatively short. The infants are given brandy rags to suck to keep them from screaming. 
a lot of miscarriages. People don't have favorite children, they just have a lot of them. In the summer, they suffer heat stroke because their frail tissue can't stand up to the often fierce sun. In winter, as I say, they freeze to death on their way to school. They all have high, squeaky voices. Most of them are crippled in one form or another. All of them are conceived in drunkenness. For the most part, criminal characters. A high percentage of the younger people are in and out of prison. Assault and battery and underage or unnatural sex are standard offenses. Child abuse, killings, are Sunday afternoon stuff. The animals are better off. After all, what people would really like is a pig, not a kid. The schools have very low standards, and the teachers are cunning and despised the way they are everywhere. I have yet to see a good-looking individual in this region. That series, or cast of monsters, that congregates at the inn includes someone called the Knacker, who is a factotum, the Woodcutter, people who work at the factory in the valley, people who are building a railway bridge, and the specter of the innkeeper's husband, who is in jail for murder, in part... (laughs) In, In part due to the incriminating testimony offered by his wife. (laughs) Sorry. Back to the serious business of podcasting. That cast, however, nameless, faceless, jobless, is kind of besides the point. This book has a spotlight, and it's fixed on the painter, Strauch. Strauch, whom the narrator has been told to follow. Strauch, the black hole and big bang of the story. A critic, Stephen Mitchell Moore, describes Bernhard's famous prose style, to which you've been partially introduced, as centripetal. All things are drawn towards an ineluctable, insatiable central point. Strauch as black hole. At the same time, and because we're dealing with Bernhard, who loves paradox and language, which is always finding ways of evoking paradox, we could say that the prose is also centrifugal with Strauch as the big bang that creates the universe around him. As the characters are without names, without real occupations, unless showing up at a factory or delivering dog meat can be called an occupation, the universe of the book could be interpreted as created entirely of Strauch's energetic grievances against the world. And the book is more or less composed entirely of Strauch's venomous outbursts. The painter Strauch, though he is called a painter and calls himself a painter and refers to past works of painting, no longer paints. Like everyone else in the village, like a bleaker, more vengeful Bartleby, he doesn't do. At a certain point, he says, My paintings were always well-reviewed, except by myself. And that seemed to be enough to make him stop. But if it stops him from creating worlds on a canvas, it encourages him to turn the real world into another kind of canvas, one where he is always painting and repainting the scene with a dab here, a jab there, then a tear and maybe a smear to top it off. And for the reader, this book is about analyzing that canvas, the so-called real world, repeatedly. Actually, let me emphasize that word, repeatedly, because it is the dominant reality in this book. I'm going to use Schopenhauer's expression, the endless noon, as a metaphor. In Frost, days pass, except they don't. Night comes, but day does not break. Again and again, the reader finds himself, like the narrator, 
standing next to the painter and considering the world. New words are spoken, but the thoughts cohere around a kind of petrified rage. That rage is communicated over the course of chapters, paragraphs, or even sentences. But because everything is painted black, everything bleeds together. That's the endless noon. When the rage is good, it is very good. And by very good, I mean extremely funny. How can you not enjoy thoughts like, So great was reason that it too was bound to fail. Or passing musings such as, There is an obligation toward the depth of one's own inner abyss. That's just the regular shit that pours out of the painter's mouth, whether he's contemplating a deformed, incest-begotten resident of Veng or a bird in a tree. I mean, there is an obligation towards the depth of one's own inner abyss, right? But if you listen again to those remarks, chosen at random, you'll see how an undertow of near nihilism is asserting itself. I say near nihilism, however, because I don't think the purpose is actually to destroy everything, and I don't think the outcome is actually anything close to nihilistic. Put another way, all this destruction in the book gives birth to something else. I found, while reading Frost, that certain terms and underlying concepts were subject to radical revision. Disgust becomes something worthwhile. Hideousness is somehow venerable. Destroying things becomes the most direct way of enlivening the world. Illness, and the painter claims he is suffering from a terrible, terminal illness, is a form of wellness, health. Because as much as this book tears down, and it aims to tear down everything, it produces something wonderful in its wake, the experience of reading this tearing down, of revaluing the world, an experience that is at once entertaining and edifying. So that's it with Bernhard, really. If you don't think the dire warnings on the end of days written as if those days were today isn't the height of comedy, he might not be for you. And I say this knowing there are readers out there somewhere, probably everywhere, who think Bernhard is deeply serious, and that he is warning us about the end of days. But lighten up and read my prizes. Thank you for listening. I want to offer a special thanks to the wonderful David Hetty, who took time out of his busy schedule of sleeping on other people's couches to read these excerpts. You're sure that was okay, that passage? That was okay? He has an album called It Was Okay, which is available on iTunes. And if you like Bernhard, you may really wish to give this a try. You may, like me, also occasionally peek around his website. I especially like the Oh Hi There section for great jokes. He's at David Hetty. That's at H-E-T-I dot com. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Little Man, What Now? by Hans Vallada. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes. Subscribe and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music, to Peter Cox, executive producer of the program, and as always, go Jays. Hey.